Hey everyone, before we start, we just want to quickly mention a few ways you can support the show. We put a lot of work into each episode, sometimes up to about 40 hours, between recording, editing, mixing, composing. It's a huge commitment, and we really just are two guys doing this, although we are starting to hire out other people to take on some of the work. But we don't make any money from this show, so here are a few easy ways you can support the show if you want us to be able to produce these episodes more efficiently and with shorter breaks. We have a soundtrack available on iTunes. It's called Between Us, a psychotherapy podcast original soundtrack. We're proud of it, and if you like the vibe of the show, you'd like putting it on in the background on a lazy weekend morning. The second way to support us is to go to patreon.com slash between us and become a supporter. Both ways are really easy and will help us do the thing that we do. Thanks. Come in and sit with me, please. Just for a little while, please. Thank you. So you're comfortable enough, right? It's perfect, thanks. Sure. You wanna know how it works? You just dangle a pocket watch in front of people's faces, is that it? (laughs) You watch a lot of TV. (laughs) When I was a kid. Ah, now you're feeling very sleepy. (laughs) (laughs) We do use focal points sometimes to guide someone into a state of heightened suggestibility. Heightened suggestibility. That's right. That's right. Do you smoke in front of my daughter? I'm gonna quit, I promise. That's my kid. That is my kid. You understand? What about your mother? Don't think so. I just wonder if it comes across how much I both love psychoanalysis (laughs) (laughs) and yet at the same time sort of feeling like, and it's it's not the end, I'll be all. We can make sure that comes across in the edit. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good. We always talk about me, and we rarely talk about you. So I'm, I guess I'm interested in some of the things that you've been writing and presenting lately. You cover a bunch of different avenues. Yes. So I realized recently when I was thinking if I were to put a compilation of my work, all the writings I've done over the course of my career, which is now going on close to 30 years, Hmm. the impetus for almost everything I write about is something that's sort of current and happening in my life. I just spoke with our guest on Friday, and I'm writing this on a Sunday right after watching the Seattle Seahawks win against the Arizona Cardinals. Our star defensive player, Earl Thomas, who has been in contract disputes with the team, seemingly broke his leg, and I think it might have been his last game as a Seahawk ever. He's 29, and in the world of the NFL, the age of 30 is kind of the hill for most positions. It brings up all kinds of feelings of frustration and grief. Frustration that some of my favorite people are athletes who are owned and traded around like property by rich team owners. 
I'm frustrated that they sacrificed their bodies for business. And I have grief that their bodies fail them. That all of our bodies fail us. And also that all of this is normal for everyone, and we will all experience it one day. Ugh, in a time of life where I face my own small tragedies as I get older, and find myself struggling in ways I hadn't struggled before, it's important for me to remember that these tragedies are also normal. Our world is full of common everyday tragedies that are either natural or have somehow become normal in our society. From getting older to getting sick, to the everyday racism and sexism that we are seeing constantly in our news feeds. My guest today is an athlete, a psychoanalyst, and a trusted advisor who I go to for help. Her name is Dr. Karen Weisbard, and we sat down the week of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, when the topics of bodies and autonomy over our bodies were very much on everyone's minds. Here she is. So the paper that I wrote and presented at IARP this last June was on race, and the impetus for that paper began last Rosh Hashanah, beginning of the Jewish New Year, Mm -hmm. when my rabbi gave a sermon about, well, every Rosh Hashanah you read the story of the binding of Isaac, and this time I heard it, and she gave it more from the position of Isaac and what it might have felt like to be Isaac and not from the position of Abraham, Mm -hmm. um, to be bound by one's father and sacrificed for some notion of a greater good. And that put me in mind of what was sort of happening in our society still is. Can you say more about that part? Yeah, so how, you know, people of a darker skin color have been sacrificed for you know, America to be the prosperous country that it is when we've built our country on the backs of slaves. Mm -hmm. And so the sort of binding of Isaac is sort of like on the back of Isaac was all of this. He was being sacrificed for Abraham's good and for the good of the Jews. And it just put me in mind of how darker skin colored people have been sacrificed for the sake of us whiter skin folk. Yeah. So that kind of really stirred me up. And then in the context of working with a client whose whose husband is a police officer, a white police officer, and in Seattle there were a number of killings in which the white police officer shot and killed Hmm. an African-American woman. Suddenly he became pretty dislocated in terms of now the white were the enemy and people were starting to call for the death of police officers, and we were both just sort of floored by the dislocation of that mm. and how it became very binary, and now the white police officers were the bad ones and the black victims were the innocent ones, and her family was pretty vitriolic about it. And in terms of you know white outrage against police brutality, which you know made total sense, but here she was also you know married to this man who was... Now, in even more danger, and yet these people were identifying themselves as, you know, progressive, liberal, would never see themselves as racist. And it just sort of created this whole storm of how these issues are so complex and how your identity can be determined Mm -hmm. by just unchanged by a simple action. 
and you could be killed or you could be seen as bad or good, but mm-hmm. it's kind of not up to you. What was the dynamic like for you and your patient in that? We were both just really kind of undone by it. And she sort of felt really isolated and didn't have anybody to really talk to about this because her family didn't ever ask her, like, how are you and what's it like now to be Mm -hmm. married to this guy? And do you feel safe in the world? And just any of it. He just became bad because he was a white police officer. So it just undid us both. And I think the thing that really undid me was just how little I kind of knew about what it was like to be her and how little it was like to be him and then how little I knew about what it was like to be a black person in America. Mm. So it just led me to do just a ton of reading on race. And I was awoken in a way by my rabbi's sermon, by everything that was sort of happening around police brutality and just sort of opened my eyes to perspectives that I had not really ever allowed myself to be in before. Did your rabbi make that connection for? About race, she did. And then after that, I spent time sort of talking with her, and she gave me a lot of resources. And now this whole year, the theme for our synagogue is sort of focusing on social justice. Mm. And so I gave a version of the paper to, at the beginning of the high holidays, as you get prepared sort of for Teshuva, which is repentance and turning and changing mm-hmm. your ways. I spoke to the congregation a little bit about this perspective and how the binding of Isaac's story sort of woke me up and how we all need to kind of wake up and get pretty uncomfortable. Mm. And shame. And then talked a lot about shame, how there's a lot of shame around our own racism, what we don't know, how we regard others. I mean, psychoanalysis, I think, has a lot to offer about how do we help people with their shame. And how do you think about that shame? You know, so much of my influences have been the writings of Jessica Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And I try to reflect on how if our shame takes us down, then we can't ever be in a position to really think or listen to another. Mm -hmm. And so we have to recognize how much shame we feel, but not kind of let it undo us. You have to feel shame. It's right. It's okay, and it doesn't, shouldn't, hopefully, lead you to have to hide. And hopefully, in community of sorts, that we can sort of all acknowledge our shame together, and mm. that we've all behaved in ways that are incredibly shameful, but they're also incredibly human. And sometimes you can't know what you don't know until you know it. Almost as if the shame is useful, then great. But if it's not useful, then it's... It's destructive. Yeah. It's so destructive. I mean, I think a lot about this as we see what's happening in the news this week in regards to, like, angry white men who are enraged at any accusation of any kind of wrongdoing and their refusal to accept any responsibility or shame. Exactly. The sort of relational point of view, why it would be, you need another person to help you modulate your shame. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a dysregulating emotion, and so you kind of do need somebody to sit with you, hopefully, if somebody can, and you let somebody sit with you, to help not make it okay that you did that wrong, but make it okay to feel the shame and feel like that's an important emotion to have, and that's, in fact, the only way we're going to change the world, is Mm -hmm. if we can sort of acknowledge in a safe way that we've done things that we're horrified by. I think this is a point that I wish everyone would write down. 
It often happens where I see therapists as patients in my practice, and I hear this anti-shame talk from them all the time, as though all shame is bad, and we should get to the point where we don't feel it. And I don't always know how to respond to it, because some of the things that we do are shameful, and we don't know how to talk through the feeling of shame and accept it. But we all do shameful things, and sometimes we are shameful by omission. I think of our nation's lack of response to racism, sexism, and violence. And if my clients feel appropriate shame, I want to walk through that experience with them, not rid them of that shame. What has the reaction been like to this paper? It's been super positive. So I was on a Mm -hmm. panel at IARP with three other therapists and analysts who also were writing about their work with race and We all presented clinical material, and the audience was really super engaged. And the most moving thing was that there were three African-American women psychologists, analysts in the audience who just thanked all of us for stepping into that space, exposing our own naivete, our own vulnerability, our own ignorance, all of that, without them having to ask us to Mm -hmm. figure out our shit. They were really glad that we had sort of worked to try to figure out our stuff and not asking black people to help us Mm -hmm. to become more conscious, that we were sort of taking the consciousness into our selves. We were all white, Mm -hmm. all white women. The relational psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, very much in Seattle, I guess, it seems like a pretty white section of our field. And it's still a problem for how do we engage Mm -hmm. The other, and whether that's the other that's a different color or the other that's of a different political vent, mm. bent than us or sees the world differently than we do. And it, it's a problem. How are we going to become more inclusive ourselves? Can we go back? Yeah. What led you to this work? So I grew up in a family where my parents, my, particularly my dad, was very interested in how do we come to be the people that we are. Mm. And so then he got involved in consciousness raising groups. So this would have been, let's say, in the late, mid-70s, mm-hmm. consciousness raising groups. What is a consciousness raising group? They were where you sort of groups for people to get together, men, women, mm-hmm. to raise your consciousness, to sort of just become more self-aware. You know, my dad and mom started to talk about how they grew up and, like, what impacted them and to the people that they are today. Mm -hmm. And so I just sort of became pretty naturally interested in psychology Mm -hmm. and knew I wanted to study psychology in college and then knew when I went to college that I wanted to go to grad school to become a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. And then my dad was a businessman, and then he also, when I went to college, he went and got his social work degree from Adelphi University, and he worked part-time as a therapist as well as a salesman for hardware products. And so it just sort of was in my world from the time I was pretty young. Did you go straight into it? Yeah. So then I was a psychology major in college, and Mm -hmm. then I applied to graduate school in the year in between graduating, and then went to Yeshiva University in New York for Mm -hmm. Kauff Graduate School of Psychology, which is secular, even though Yeshiva University is a religious institution. And I was just so very fortunate that all our instructors were pretty much analysts. We were encouraged to be in psychoanalysis. We learned every theoretical school of thought that you could possibly learn. 
I did my research on the development of autonomy in women, hmm. which was another sort of topic near and dear to my heart, like mm-hmm. how do you become separate but related, and where separation wasn't just about becoming this independent person but not needing relationships. Mm-hmm. So I looked at the development of autonomy in women and how parent-child relationships impact that. My analyst was at the White Institute, and he was in training mm-hmm. to become an analyst. And so just like, you know, when I became an analyst, you had to have control cases, people you saw in psychoanalysis that were then supervised. Mm-hmm. So for $10 a session, mm-hmm. I got to have three, four times a week psychoanalysis in New York City. And so I did that for four years of, during all of graduate school. That's how I became immersed in psychoanalysis. And then, of course, during that time was like when relational psychoanalysis was sort of being founded, I think the first issue of Dialogues was 1989. So the whole relational stuff was all in my graduate career. So it just sort of was like the food that I was sort of fed on. I just feel really lucky that I was able to be in graduate school during that time. As a woman, was there pushback at that time? No. I think by that time, maybe the feminization of psychology was starting to sort of already have happened. I'm think the majority of us were women anyway. Mm-hmm. So no, being a woman was not an issue. Did you go into practice? So no, then I moved out to Seattle. What brought you to Seattle? <laughs> the mountains. Okay. So the other part of my life when I'm not being a therapist is also loving to be in the out of doors mm-hmm. and doing whatever I can outdoors. So before I started my internship in psychology, everybody said it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And so I thought, well, if that's the hardest thing I'll ever do, I'm going to go do something really hard before I start that so that when it gets hard, I know I've already done something really hard. So I came out here and did a mountain climbing class on Mount Baker, seven-day class. Had never done mountain climbing before. Had done camping, but never mountain climbing. And it was a seven-day class in which you learned to like use ice axes and glissade and crampons and walk in snow and everything like that. And just fell in love with the area and decided that this would be a place that I might like to live. So Mm. after I graduated from graduate school, went back, did my internship at King County Hospital in Brooklyn. A different King County. A different King County, completely different. The psychiatric hospital was nine floors, and there was a different level of care on every floor, including the psychiatric emergency room on the first floor. Wow. And you had to rotate through all of these units. So I moved out here. Hmm. That was in 1990, and at the time that I moved out here, like, Seattle didn't know about Stephen Mitchell, didn't know about Jessica Benjamin. Like, none of the people that I had been reading in graduate school did anybody really know of out here. So I thought I was going to, like, come out here, go into psychoanalytic training, just like I would have done had I stayed in New York, started a private practice. No, like, worked at a psychiatric hospital, which psychologists don't do out here. So it took a while, and then finally when Northwest Center for Psychoanalysis was an independent institute that was here in Seattle that was founded by people who were graduates of the White in New York, Mm -hmm. opened up, then I finally had a place to go to train. So I graduated in 2002 from psychoanalytic training and started it in 1998. And by that point, I was married and pregnant. Hmm. So I think the mountain climbing and wilderness track takes me to a few things that we, we've talked about lately. You've also written on some topics of athleticism yeah. lately. 
I taught a class through our organization here, Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy in Seattle, called A Course in the Body mm-hmm. a few years ago. And it was not just a course in and about the body. And it wasn't just learning about like how we use our body as analysts, but also how do we occupy our bodies actually. And so part of every class was an experiential component we did a partial class with yoga, partial class with dance movement therapy. So we would like read an article about the body and psychoanalysis, and then we would do an experiential thing together as a class. And then we would debrief all together mm-hmm. about what it was like to sort of do this body thing and be in our bodies rather than just talking about our bodies, but talking kind of from our bodies. I've been playing competitive tennis for about the last 12 years. Mm-hmm. The first year that I was on a competitive tennis team, our team went to national championships, and then I wrote a paper after that about the joy of intersubjectivity. And that came about from my playing tennis and from my sort of being pretty preoccupied and devoted to this endeavor, especially as our team got better and better and better. Mm. So So wait, what is the intersection of tennis and intersubjectivity? The intersubjectivity of joy. I was so joyful playing tennis and it wasn't just from being in the sport but it was like being with my teammates but also it was then and how is that impacting my family mm-hmm. because you know I was gone a lot to leave mm-hmm. to play tennis and at some point like my children wouldn't even notice how I was dressed just like every time I would leave the house I would say are you going to play tennis and I'd be like I'm in work clothes like no I'm not going to play tennis I'm going to work mm-hmm. but I got so carried away with some of the experience of doing this and that was very gratifying personally but also really weird to like sit with patients and realize that like I don't want to be here I'm thinking about like as soon as I get off of work I can go hit tennis balls Mm -hmm. and it was this really weird experience to be kind of feeling that way but having to also be working and also the sort of erasure of like my family stopped kind of noticing other aspects of who I was Mm -hmm. That was kind of a weird experience and also me kind of losing sight of my like role as a mother and I had this like point where I was in a tennis tournament and it was also like bring your kid to the baseball game day. My kid was a little league baseball player and I was like torn like should I stay and play the match or should I leave and finally I left and had to forfeit my match Mm -hmm. so I could be at the little league day with him at the baseball field. And then that was like another wake-up call, like, what am I doing? Like, this sport. Seducing you away from your family. It was. And so the intersubjectivity of joy was like being able to do something that was so incredibly powerful and joyful for me, but the intersubjective component of there are all these others who I still have to think about and who are being impacted by this, and it was sort of like it had to bring me down to earth. And that took away some of the feeling of joy. But it was also a more integrated experience. There is something about talking about sports that makes me feel more integrated. Like I spend so much time in my mind, it feels integrated to spend time out of the abstract and in the physical space. Not only as someone who likes to exercise, but as a fan. This was the first time that some of these topics had come up between Karen and I, and it felt good to talk about them. And listening back, I realized that I get all my shop talk out between a certain few other therapists, and that the bulk of my conversation in real life is usually with musicians or artists I'm friends with here in Seattle or with my wife, talking about sports. 
talking about Seahawks football, really. So I didn't exactly expect the conversation with Karen to go there, but it makes sense because I think we are both at different stages in our career looking for something different. And for me, the thing I'm looking for is to become more of myself and more real as hopefully a benefit to my patients. And sometimes for me, being real means just talking about the stories and narratives of sports. Plain and simple. Back to what happened to Karen and her tennis career. I think what happened for me is after that, like my competitive edge mm-hmm. really went down. The fact of my opponent being on the other side and me now having this awareness of like I'm all these other things, I'm not just a tennis player on the court, and neither are they, right? So really like for a while, for like years, impacted my sort of competitive edge. It makes me think of Serena Williams now, right? Her becoming a mother and what's happened to her competitive edge and, you know, what happened to her at the U.S. Open where she really lost it big time. Well, sure. I mean, that's a bunch of topics that you are interested in intersecting, including tennis, but also race and motherhood. Exactly. And all of the components, right? Mm -hmm. And she feels herself to be this spokesperson that also wants to change the world which I also have that part of me that wants to really change mm-hmm. the world and change the way people think about mm-hmm. things and psychoanalysis and people and how we relate to each other. So I wrote a paper about football because my son was a football player and about masculinity and the relational component of football because, again, football is this evil sport that everybody sees as dangerous and terrible and physically bad for you. But the relational piece of what happens on this team, or from I was fortunate. I felt like my kid was on a really good team with really good coaches who cared about who they were going to become as men, Mm -hmm. but not just men who want to kill other people, but men who really need to care about other people. And how do you, again, that intersubjective space of like, how do you do that when you're also need to kill your opponent? Just like on the tennis court, like, what do you do? You need to keep your competitive edge, but you also need to have this other aspect of yourself there and available. And just, I think that stuff is interesting and fascinating. These are, I just think these are such complex issues, and what I love about relational psychoanalysis is the way that we can sort of really, if we're doing our work well, we can try to sort of occupy through our empathy and through just being all the various positions any one human being can be in at any one time. So you could be the sensitive man, or you could be the killer football player, or you could be the mother, or you could be the child. You are all of those things. And just the kaleidoscope of that. And, you know, my son is a defensive end, and he's, you know, he's never going to get, he's, you know, not going to get major recognition. He's not the quarterback or the running back. And I think that's a good position for him because he's, like, part of a team. He doesn't need to be the star. And I think he's, like, figured out how to both take care of his subjectivity of, like, the kind of guy that he is and also find a way to still do this sport. So there's a lot more there, but I'm also thinking about like what inevitably happens to people who go into professional sports, which is something that's happening, I think, to you and me at different levels, which is that the body starts to break right. down. Yeah. So what happened for me is, you know, sitting is now considered about one of the most dangerous things you can do for your health. It's worse than cigarette smoking. Hmm. And realizing the toll on my body body, even though I have a very specialized chair that's accommodated for my body, but just the toll that my body takes sitting all day long, the aches and pains in my hips and back. 
so worked really hard to stay super fit, but then over a year and a half ago, uh, just out of nowhere, got this illness called polymyalgia rheumatica, which is initials are PMR. It's a systemic inflammatory illness, and until I got diagnosed, I really thought something was terribly wrong with me because I could hardly walk at certain points. I couldn't lift my legs without assistance with my hands. I couldn't go up steps without actually having to lift my leg to get it to the next step. I had pain in the back of my head, and I thought for sure, you know, had tons of tests, ruled out all these things, but felt like I had a brain tumor. And the way that I described it to all the doctors was I felt like the Tin Man, like my body had just run out of oil. Mm. So finally... I got diagnosed with this illness, got treated with prednisone, and was on that for over a year because it's a really dangerous drug and you have to get off it really super slowly. But that really put me in mind for kind of what am I doing and this isn't long-term. I don't know how sustain—my my body's way better now and I don't hurt mm-hmm. anymore. But just I don't know how sustainable this is for another— you know, I'm pretty young, so I could work for another 20, 30 years. Mm. And probably if I stayed mentally fit, you know, I'd still probably be able to do this, work well. But I think also for me, psychoanalysis, I think, can do a lot more for society than it maybe can do in the confines of a 45 or 50-minute session. And we were, we were just with one other person, but I would love to see this work be out more in the world. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have more of a desire these days to figure out how psychoanalysis can get out Mm. kind of of the consulting room, which would also obviously help me because then maybe I don't have to sit in my chair all the time and I can be more mobile and I can be more active and perhaps expand the reach of psychoanalysis. And so for me, that's super important just as a moral value, but also fits with where I currently am. In January of 2018, I thought I had pink eye, but the ophthalmologist told me that I actually had iritis, or inflammation of the eye. By the time I had finally gone to the specialist, my vision in my left eye was nearly gone. I got on steroids immediately, and my vision slowly came back, but the bigger issue was that he found it to be indicative of an autoimmune form of arthritis. I was 35 when I got this news, and it kind of sent me reeling from shock. I'm an active guy, I exercise, and I think most of my friends would say that I act far younger than my age, but to hear the word arthritis thrown around. I had been noticing more foot pain over the last year, but I actually had started to think it was from running too much. And that might be true, but only because I wasn't well. After nine months of treatment and changing my diet and exercise routine, I think I've adapted, but the existential reality is still with me. Physical things don't get easier from here on out. And I'm not the only one who experiences these kinds of changes. In fact, other than having an earlier onset, these kinds of changes are normal. People have them, but still. As I was talking about this to colleagues, I was starting to hear a theme of various autoimmune disorders in our field. I was and am curious if there is a correlation or if it's just coincidental. Maybe there's just a lot of us with Ashkenazi genes. Do the feelings and experiences, though, of trauma that we have held on to for our patients stay in our bodies to some degree? I don't even know how you would begin to research that. Do you think that that would have onset had you not been an analyst? 
It's, you know, random. It's like sudden onset after the age of 55. So I think that had I not been sitting, I probably would have just been as vulnerable. But I hear about these things a lot from therapists. It's hard for me to not make the connection between how much we're holding for our well, patients. Well, that did affect me, too. I started to like feel much more vulnerable, like the impact of clients' pain and the stories of trauma in their lives and sitting with that. I felt like my resilience to being able to hear that day in and day out was starting to fade. Mm-hmm. And maybe as my body was also starting to feel more impacted, And certainly, like, naturopathic medicine and other kinds of thoughts about, like, what listening to trauma does to Mm -hmm. one's body every day definitely is a factor, I think, for me. And now I really feel like I can't see more than, like, five clients in a day. I just don't have the stamina Mm -hmm. that I used to have. And I need to, like, leave the day and be able to move my body and go do things that are really different than sitting and listening. I can't listen to the news like I used to. Of course, the news is terrible. Right. I can't watch gut-wrenching movies anymore. I just really feel like I need a mental and physical break, and I need to occupy kind of different spaces. Can there be a different model for what we do? I mean, I'm thinking back to like when I was in community mental health. My clients didn't want it to be very formal. Sometimes we would take walks to mm-hmm. the park together, I get that like we have a very consumeristic society and people want to get a really nice service when they're paying for it. But I'm just wondering if like does it have to be this kind of sedentary I just think we need to really start expanding how we think about what we do and we have so much to offer what we know about the unconscious, about attachment, about human relationships that I just I don't know. For me, I don't know what other model I would want to practice psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. in or psychotherapy in. But I know that I would like to figure out how what we have knowledge-wise and what we know about people can get out in a different way. So I don't know that I would want to practice necessarily differently in terms of my psychoanalytic psychotherapy practice. But I know I don't want to just do this kind of work all the time. But for me, it might be being a park ranger. Like, I might not want to bring psychoanalysis into it. Is that something it. you're considering? Yeah, it is. Being a volunteer park ranger. So the other thing, you know, about the body is aging. So right. I'm going to be presenting a paper here in Seattle at the end of October at the International Forum for Psychoanalytic Education, and it is called Unsilencing the Normal. Mm -hmm. Often, when we talk about the personal in our work, it's often some kind of tragic thing that has happened, death of a child, divorce, cancer. And it feels to me like not enough is written about just the normal developmental changes we go through as humans over the course of our life, but over the course of the life of being a therapist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years had two children, now they're raised. It's sort of like, how does the process of aging impact the kind of work I want to do with my clients, my ability to sit, my ability to be resilient, my ability to continue to mother and nurture in the traditional ways? What does containment look like? Like all the things that being an aging person Mm -hmm. 
does shifts your perspective on life. You know, how many more years are left? How long will I have to live? What do I want to do with the time remaining? I mean, all that kind of stuff is kind of up for me right now. And so I'm thinking about how that is obviously impacting me as a therapist, but also I just feel like the discipline maybe doesn't do enough to kind of like out these just very regular things that happen to people that were somehow the model of what it means to be an analyst, to be so contained, to be so intellectual, to be so thoughtful. And yet, you know, that's not all of who we are. How do we account for these in terms of my subjectivity and the subjectivity of a therapist? I mean, this is the stuff our clients are dealing with all the time. And so it feels like up to us therapists to sort of figure out how do we think about that ourselves and then how do we bring that, our own experience, not necessarily through disclosure, but just through our own experience of living it Mm -hmm. to our work. You know, I had way more stamina when I was 30 in being a therapist and a psychoanalyst, but I've lived all this life now. You know, I've seen a lot of things, personally and professionally. I feel like I've lived a lot of life since 32. <laughs> You're how old? 36. <laughs> I think this, our subjectivity, right? That's what relational psychoanalysis is so, speaks a lot to. But I think like what you're saying is, but there's areas of our subjectivity that still nobody is talking about. Mm-hmm. Like aging. I, there's very little written. I've looked, you know, as I'm writing this paper, very little written in the psychoanalytic journals about the aging therapist. And yet, what's it like to think about retiring? That's a huge thing to think about and what it's going to be like for our clients and what we're leaving behind in these people who we've loved. I think it's great if people want to do that the rest of their lives. But for me, that's never been... I can't imagine doing this for the rest of my life. I need to do other things because other things bring me incredible joy, even though this also brings me incredible joy and satisfaction. I mean, you talked earlier about wanting to bring therapy to a larger world, larger audience. That happened in a weird way this last week in that we get to hear in a congressional hearing about therapy notes, about couples counseling, about the therapy process, and pretty eloquently about some of the neurological components of trauma. Have you experienced, and I know that this is just one moment in a larger movement over about the last year, in either yourself or your patients, has there been an unlocking of? Completely. This whole week. Mm-hmm. So there was the priest abuse mm-hmm. a couple of right. weeks ago, months ago, that was brought people in talking about that kind of trauma that they have had in their lives or just what it's like to be in relationship to an institution that they have totally loved and to find out about this just really rocking their world. But also within the last week or two, I would say I have had more clients, men and women, talk about assaults, sexual assaults, drunken escapades that have happened to them and that they have never talked about or never told. And men also who have been those drunken frat guys who have inappropriately approached women, touched women, hurt women, also being able to start to speak about how they behaved back when and just feeling terrible for many people. I think being able to now speak is pretty huge and amazing that actually some things are able to be talked about that have never been able to be talked about before.
I know that our field has been addressing trauma for a long time and for better or worse, attempting to address it. I don't feel like we have done much to address the political. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just that I haven't read the right things. But I think when I interview people and talk about the political situation where they're typically hesitant to talk about some of these things publicly, but it seems like we're dealing in textbook cases everywhere. Like to watch Brett Kavanaugh's response seems like a clear narcissistic wound slash rage. The picture of him will live forever of that rageful alcoholic face yeah, with all the women behind him aghast. Yeah. I mean, that picture is... You don't need more words. It's just right out there for the public to see. And sometimes I feel like words get us too much in our head. Like we just need to sit with that face Mm -hmm. and feel what we feel inside our body. And we can also compare and contrast it to her face. And And feel what we feel inside our body looking at her face. Just being able to help people settle in, locate what is happening inside your body. As you hear about this stuff, as you see this stuff— and I'm not not a big, like, get into intellectual debates with people about it. I would much rather sit and feel what it feels like to be in this place in time. I, w- I really, my interest is much more trying to get people to locate where they're at. Because I sort of feel like we can fight right, left, yeah. all that. But if we don't get into our body and feel what we're feeling inside and how we want to cry and how we want to scream and how helpless we feel and how enraged we feel and how... Our bodies are hurting. Like, I did think that when I got the PMR, like, maybe this was the effect of Trump being elected president. Just the experience of assault and disappointment and just all of that. How I want to approach this stuff is to really just get people to feel. I mean, people just are glued to their frickin' phones and their iPads and reading (laughs) one story after another, but I don't know if they're stopping to feel. I don't think we do want to stop to feel what it feels like because I think it feels terrible. It feels awful and depressing and scary and helpless and powerless and all these things, like what's happening to our world. I don't think that's the language that people are interested in speaking. I know. I mean, it seems like this is just not your world right now. It's not Uh, mine either. But I feel it. I see it, but I would much rather look out the window here and see the mountains and the beautiful water and sailboats on it and feel like, yeah, that makes me feel calm. Yeah. I mean, my husband looks at pictures. He reads the news all the time. That's all he can do is be obsessed with reading the news ever since Trump got elected and even before. And what he does to soothe himself, he looks at pictures of puppies on the Internet. But it's like, what's happening? This is, you obviously are in need of comfort. Like, people are in need of comfort. It's pretty hard to feel. Hmm. But when I wrote the racism paper, I had to feel a lot of alteration inside for just how awful what was happening in our world was and what was happening to people, black people. And it felt awful. Awful, awful. Do you internalize that as guilt? I think it's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's appropriate guilt and shame. Responsibility, taking responsibility. That phrase is a phrase that people don't want to accept, appropriate guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. So I use the term Hanini from the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac because God calls to Abraham and Isaac calls to Abraham and he answers Hanini, which is translated as here I am. Mm. And what that means is get out of your dissociation and wake up to what is happening 
around you and what you're about to do. You're about to kill your son. What is happening? Wake up. And that's, I feel really passionate about, we got to get really, really uncomfortable and wake up and then we can figure out what to do next. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, John. This has been Between Us. Our show is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely, who also composes our music, with additional editing by Chris Keene at Cutter's Cathedral in Chico, California. If you like the show, make sure to find us where you find podcasts and subscribe. And if you can, leave a review on iTunes. Also, find the Between Us Psychotherapy Podcast original soundtrack on iTunes to own some of our original music and support the show. Or you can find us at patreon.com slash between us to become a supporter. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and say hello. And until next time, take care. <laughs>